Hey, it's Joey Thurman. I'm excited to bring you season two of the Fad or Future podcast. We live in a world where information is everywhere, easy to access, and sometimes not always accurate, especially in the health and wellness space, which is exactly why I created this show. There's two sides to every story, and I'm here to present both and let you decide, is it a fad or is it the future? Health fads come and go, but the science behind them is what makes them work or fail. I'm bringing the experts to you and putting the facts on the table so you can decide how and where to put your efforts in your own personal health and wellness journey. All right, what's going on? It's Joey Thurman, another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast, and I'm here with my buddy Rubio Forte, all the way from Vienna. He just came back from a run, so apparently he is uh, walking the talk or running the talk, I guess, if you will. Uh, Rubio, you're a nutritional scientist. Um, well, first of all, thanks for coming on. And secondly, what's nutritional scientist versus nutritionist versus dietitian? What is it that you do? Well, th- first of all, Joey, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Well, what I do, uh, I'm a nutritional scientist from uh, Vienna, Austria at the University of Vienna. And uh, what a nutritional scientist does is uh, focusing on nutritional components uh, with the effects on the metabolism. And we spend a lot of time with analyzing food components uh, in hygiene and um, yeah, their effects on the metabolism precisely, whether, uh, where a nutritionist mainly works with uh, clients in particular with uh, just developing the the nutrition plans and uh, doing uh, interventions in that section, at least from, from my knowledge. So they don't really have the particular work in the labs and doing the research on their own. They're just uh, the ones that work with the clients. And um, yeah, that's, that's the explanation. Okay, so, so you're the one that has done all the research that the nutritionists are using to, to, uh, to their that would be the that would be the field yeah 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 all right so, so we're, you're we're the ones with the lab coats on and uh, standing <laughs> <in> the... <laughs> that's and you're you're actually in shape too because I, I i've seen lots of people in the nutrition field that you know like they they might be thin um but as far as actually working out and lifting weights you you actually do that what's your athletic background well, I, um, I, I come from a tennis background, so to say. I play, also played uh, um, at the college with a scholarship in the U.S. Um, so that's my original background. And then just uh, when it turned out that I'm not good enough to compete at a professional level, I switched to, uh, to natural bodybuilding just because I loved the sport and uh, always admired the, the athletes with, you know, with the jacked look. And that's always been... Uh, my idols like David Hay and Günther Schlierkamp, like a German bodybuilder, famous mm-hmm. one. So um, yeah, I went that path and uh, enjoyed that a lot. Well, that, that's something you don't hear, a, a tennis player turned bodybuilder, because that's completely two different frames. I mean, you got kind of a much leaner frame on, on a tennis player, and then bodybuilder is obviously carrying a lot more muscle tissue. So, that's true, yeah, but that's where it, uh, where, where the difficulty came for me. I just turned too heavy at some point and had the entirely wrong focus with my training. I was always the athletic guy and always a little bit too heavy to, to move fast enough around the court. And my coaches just couldn't get me away from that because I was basically addicted to, uh, you know, doing bench, heavy bench pressing, <laughs> heavy uh, 
deadlifts and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, just. Uh, uh, so your, your body might be more conducive to putting on muscle tissue and as opposed to, you know, being a more of a endurance type athlete. I mean, uh, tennis players, are, they've got a sprint component to it as well. So you've got fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers, but if you're putting on muscle quite easily, it's, you might've chose your wrong sport all the way through college, which is kind of funny. Yeah. They tried to recruit me for American football as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I just wanted to uh, go ahead and do my sport, which I loved, you know, from childhood on. My grandfather was my first coach when I was, I don't know, three years old or something. So, you know, I always have been uh, with a huge uh, passion to this sport, but uh, maybe a couple of years too late with, uh, with uh, accepting that maybe it's not my, my future profession. Sure. Yeah, I, I played hockey all the way through college. These teeth, they're actually real. Um, but yeah, you know, I, 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 dab, I dabbled in one game of minor league hockey and when there was a bench clearing brawl, I'm like, all right, this is, this is not, not for me. I don't think I can go play in the NHL and make a ton of money doing this. <laughs> all right. All right. So let, let's get into it. So you have a really interesting, we, we found each other on social media and you've got a really interesting account. You've got, you've got a lot of infographics and you really get into obviously the science of things because that's what you do. Um, now, I want to really talk about a lot of the fads uh, and the myths. I mean, especially since this is fatter future of nutrition, because there's so much shit out there and everybody can find a specific study to fit what they want to believe in. Right. I mean, you're going to have that confirmation bias, whether, whether you're a vegan or carnivore or paleo or standard American diet, everybody's going to find some sort of study that says why they are right and why it's okay. What, what they're doing. Um, so right now, let's just get into it. Why, why do you find people just don't believe science? And how do you find the right scientific study where you can actually believe what the nutrition, what the science says? Well, my attempt has always been to not really go with just one source, but recombining information that I find, you know, Whenever information goes to people's heads, uh, when we talk about humans, there's always going to be a bias in, in every study. You know, these people do it with a specific interest, and usually they have a financial background, so somebody has to pay for it, and there's always some kind of bias. We have to just accept that, and that's not a bad thing because otherwise we wouldn't have any science at all. And what I do is just before I uh, work with a specific topic, I try to evaluate what potential conflict of interest there could be and then find information from all of those, you know, sections where, where the information might come from and then just, uh, you know, evaluate for myself what I think is the, the real deal or the information that makes the most sense for me because there's no real other uh, way of doing it from my perspective. So there's always going to be bias and you know in the end it's it's a little bit of personal perspective as well of course I have uh, specific ideologies and I try to uh, put my information out as rational as I can but uh, of course with the knowledge that you know with my with my background I have you know it's all it's always a little bit of a bias but yeah we all we, we do our best. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's all, all you can do. I mean, as opposed to seeing some random comment on Facebook or something, if you actually look into 
the background and where the study is from. I, th- I think that's probably a good place for people to start with. And are there multiple studies to back up what you're finding as opposed to just, you know, one study why soda is good for you, whatever the hell that is. Uh, so what do you think is, is the main thing right now that people are really struggling with as far as nutrition, right? I mean, is it the, the main myth that you think that carbs are bad? Maybe, well, let's just get into this. Um, carbohydrates. What do you think about carbohydrates? Because that's one of the main things people, when they start want to lose weight, they just want to cut carbs. Um, what is your rationale behind carbohydrates? And are there good ones? Are there bad ones? Or should people just cut them completely? Yeah, there's definitely a difference in the quality of carbohydrates. That's the first aspect that we have to talk about. So it's a difference whether you consume a refined carbohydrate in shape of some uh, kind of gummy bears with super high processing, or if you consume an apple or a sweet potato, that's of course a difference. But the first thing that we have to look on or that we have to focus on is that we have three macronutrients maybe four if you want to include alcohol which uh, doesn't really make sense but um, it's it's fat protein uh, and carbohydrates and only two of them are essential meaning that you have to consume them from the outside exogenously to keep up all body functions and those are protein and fat so carbohydrates are non-essential meaning that you can synthesize all the carbohydrates that you need endogenously through a process called gluconeogenesis so that's the first thing that we have to accept that's just you know there's not really a question about it which doesn't mean that we have to um, you know demonize carbohydrates they still are in the background or if you want to perform on a very high level also on a cognitive level that's uh, something that we we have to take in consideration but the main aspect is that we can't base our diets on carbohydrates when we know that there are three macronutrients that are essential and carbohydrate uh, two that are essential and carbohydrates is none of them so mm. it's all a little bit you know the perspective that the mainstream gives you on that wouldn't wouldn't really tell that you know so that's something we we really should focus on in this debate yeah you know because i I think that people you know when they hear that the you know non-essential versus essential they're thinking oh like well i can completely cut them out but you 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 hit the nail on the head and it's probably contextually based right if 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 you're an athlete if you're if you're looking for endurance and power and strength and you know cognitive support yeah the the right amount of carbohydrates are probably going to completely matter for you i mean are are people fat adapted or um keto if you will which we can get into that too but you know aesthetically they're probably going to be much leaner because they're not taking in uh, those carbs so why do you think people uh feel like they need to be completely cutting these because your keto is huge right now right Uh, and people going and i know that you made a post about keto um um, and what did you call it auto ketosis um i believe or auto ketogenic um why do you feel that people are, need, need to cut that so much? Because there is a certain percent of the population that having a high percentage of fat probably won't be good for them because they can actually digest them. 
Yeah, I think the general purpose of achieving ketosis is a little bit weird also when the community, uh, when this keto community debates the kind of things, you know, because there is no, ketosis is a metabolic state which has not really any, you know, benefit apart from maybe some kind of autoimmune disease or some cognitive diseases that we can talk about where it's really might be a great um, targeted intervention, but for an average man or woman, the state of metabolic ketosis has no average over just, uh, you know, re the regular metabolization of all the natural foods and uh, the entire spectrum of foods that we have. So when they talk about ketosis, what they usually mean is that they want to lose body fat and they, that's, you know, the buildup of ketosis, um, emphasizes the metabolization of fat components in your body. But just because of ketosis, you're in a state of ketosis, that doesn't mean that you're actually losing body fat. That's just a metabolic state. Mm. So that's why I um, talked about this term autoketosis <laughs> in my Instagram page, um, which basically means that the purpose behind that should be that you're, uh, that you're metaboliz metabolizing your, uh, your own body fat and not by just, you know, eating all the food uh, and all the fat components from the outside by desperately trying to get into the state of ketosis, which doesn't make sense from my perspective, to be honest. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's what people don't understand is they think that need to be in this ketogenic state to actually burn fat, but you can burn fat if you're having higher amounts of carbohydrates, you can burn fat. It depends on what your system is using. So, how can people really know, you know, if they're actually utilizing proper nutrients, if they're actually burning fat, right? Because people always think about, oh, I need to completely cut my carbs 100% so my body can start pulling fat as an energy. Um, is, is there a, because you work with professional athletes, right? So if you want them to lose fat, um, what do you feel like the, is the best course of action, you know, for someone to do that? Uh, for me, the best course to do that is actually going with natural body signals. And, you know, my attempt would always be to primarily rebuild natural body signals and hunger signaling before I work with the client. And then, you know, in a state where you have natural hunger signals, you can really trust the individual's body signals and then go by them and build up a dietary regimen built on their individual needs, which will always lead to the ideal body weight in every case. So um, there are individual differences like the composition of the microbiota, which you have to take uh, into consideration every time. You can uh, measure those things with you know a lot of work that you have to put in, but the easier way to do that is just rebuilding natural hunger signals and then go from there, which always leads to success. Sometimes I have to work, uh, I have to be honest here, I have to work with forced feeding or a forced diet when, for example, I, I work with a lot of combat sports athletes that have to use, uh, have to have a specific weight uh, on a specific date. So what we do is just, um, yeah, play around with the hydration and with the food sources, etc., to just drop the weight drastically but for an average person that tries to, to lose body fat, you shouldn't just focus on yeah, metabolic state or something that comes from the outside. You should, that should be an endogenous process. You should trust in your body signals and build up your own dietary regimen based on them. 
And there is no expert that knows what's the best dietary intervention for you. Um, all we can do as experts is to help you to find out what's best for you individually by activating your natural body signals. That's at least my perspective. Yeah. So uh, when you say uh, your own body signals, how do people know what that is and, and how do you tap into that? Right. I mean, I think a lot of people are confused you know, when they're actually hungry or thirsty or tired, or you've got all these natural body processes. I mean, um, how do you start, with someone that really doesn't know how to tap into that? Um, the attempt usually is by uh, cutting out the uh, processes that trigger you away from the natural body signals. So that is uh, what we focus on. And that would be, for example, exclude all the processed foods that you're consuming because they are designed to disrupt you exactly from those signals, which in the long term always lead to overconsumption of those foods. So for example, when we talk about processed sugar, you won't gain weight because you eat a Snicker bar at one particular time. But if you don't break that behavior, it is going to accumulate. And for the next uh, event where you have a Snicker bar, you need more of it to, to experience the same pleasure. And then you have this process. And by breaking that circle, for example, with, with the focus on the sugar and that, um, we rebuild natural hunger signals and people start to crave for real foods. And then you build up uh, on those individual signals. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to uh, be a very precise intervention to, uh, to lose body fat and has a success rate of 100%, at least for my clients, I can, I can tell that. <laughs> really? So how, how long does it take for someone? I mean, you say processed foods, so I'm assuming just, you know, candies and the sweets and the sodas and all that sort of stuff. Um, how long does it take for someone to cut that out until they really start understanding their own hunger signals? I mean, is it, is it a couple of weeks? Is it months? Is it immediate? What do you notice? That depends a bit on how long people have been in that cycle. And, you know, it doesn't only depend on the, um, on, on the foods that you're, you're eating, but also majorly on your environment because the adverse behavior usually is triggered by things in your environment as well. Because people get back at home and they sit on the sofa and then start uh, eating a lot of crap, you know, while watching on the TV. But if you don't... Uh, break the behavior of sitting in front of the TV in the evening in the first place, you're always going to trigger back that behavior. So it's, always, it's also a big psychologic uh, component behind that. Uh, um, so yeah, it really, how long it takes uh, really depends on the individual and how the ability is to break those behaviors. Um, it, you know, it could be two weeks, it could be two months, um, but later, more than two months, I actually never experience mm. if um, the client really is willing to make the changes and, uh, you know, accept that this is going to be a process that will have a discon, I don't know the English word for it, but it's going to induce some uh, short-term pain. And if you are sure. able to sustain that and work through that in order to achieve something better in the long run, um, that's a major aspect if you can do it or not. Okay. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm sure the people that come to you to, to work with you, one of their athletes, they, they have a high drive anyways. So they're going to pretty much 
do what you tell them to. And I think anybody that is really ready to, I mean, if you've played, you know, professional sports or high level sports and you've pushed, pushed yourself through that pain and discomfort of training and you want to do everything that you can for the most part. And that includes nutrition. Um, so I'm sure, yes, it makes sense. It's completely individually based. All right, let's, let's talk about, um, some big ones here. Salt. Everybody demonizes salt and, you know, they, especially, I mean, you, you even have uh, like dash diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. They say you got to cut the salt because of, you know, high blood pressure. Everybody says like you need to stop salting your food or particularly having high sodium. Right. Um, so what do you think about that? And, um, you know, is salt that big of a problem as you know, we've been told by the medical professionals? Um, you know, I, I mean, when you ask it like that way, I would say yes, uh, <laughs> with the first intention. Um, first of all, when we talk about salts, um, when we, usually it refers to sodium. As a chemist, you know, salt can be a lot of things. So um, when we talk about regular salt, and you usually talk about the sodium components uh, with the chloride that you can find at the supermarket. And that definitely... Um, is not not the biggest not not the big problem that causes hypertension um, because sodium overconsumption usually has the background of first uh, carbohydrate addiction because nobody um, just overeats uh, sodium in a healthy state that just doesn't happen it doesn't feel right nobody does that mm -hmm. so there is already a physiological respectively a psychological disease in the background that induces that misbehavior sodium is not the problem for hypertension or any kind of uh, of, of that of those diseases that most people try to you know link it to it or some however you say it right so it it's the combination of the the processed carbohydrates and everything that come with the additional sodium intake that seems to be the problem yeah exactly there there are I did a post on that, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago where I explained how um, uh, processed carbohydrate uh, consumption <clears throat> forces the body to increase sodium retention. So I, uh, it's, you know, when we talk about those complex metabolic pathways, I think we're probably going to lose some of, <laughs> of the people. But, you know, if you're interested in reading through that, I did that on my Instagram page, but um, Definitely the sodium is not the problem because um, I have nobody, no client at all or no athlete that overconsumes sodium in a healthy state or that, that just doesn't happen. It, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, and, and you're, you're going to need sodium, especially if you're an athlete, you know, pre and post workout to replenish those electrolytes and you're, you're losing that in sweat. So, um, I mean, I think it's a recommendation like 500 milligrams of sodium pre and post workout, depending on, you know, what, what you're, what you're doing too. And I mean, I think in the, in the States, 2000 milligrams of sodium or 1500, 2000 milligrams of sodium is, is the, the recommended. And I know myself, I'm taking 500 milligrams of sodium pre and post workout. And on top of that, you know, adding salt, sodium to my foods. So I'm probably having three, four times the recommended amount. My blood pressure is completely fine. You know, so yeah. it's, it's really interesting to see that. Yeah. So uh, maybe I can add something to it. It's, yeah. uh, all, you know, it's a, uh, it's a natural exercise of the renals and the kidneys to excrete excessive sodium from the body. 
So without an already severe state, it's pretty much impossible to have too high sodium levels in an acute state. That just doesn't really happen. You would have to like indulge, you know, lots of sodium to achieve that. And that it just doesn't happen with natural body signals. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So if, if you're active and you're, and you're not having a bunch of processed carbohydrates, probably don't really have to worry about your sodium intake that much. No. Okay. <laughs> so uh, along the lines of sodium, cholesterol, right? So we talk about red meat and eggs and things that have these high, high cholesterol things. So I mean, we're, we're getting into, into the, the main myths right now. What do you think about, you know, people consuming? Like it used to be say that you, you should only have one or two servings of red meat per week. And now, like, obviously, you know, with keto and carnivore and all these other diets, you've got these people that are eating red meat multiple times a day and they're having high amounts of saturated fat um, and cholesterol by way of what they're eating. Yeah, also the same thing with, uh, with cholesterol, almost like with the sodium. The cholesterol that you're consuming from foods is not the problem because the liver that we all have is very precise at regulating the cholesterol that is uh, moving around in our bodies. And the liver synthesizes around two grams of cholesterol a day. And the amount of cholesterol that we have in total in our bodies is, uh, I think, around 35 grams of cholesterol. So it doesn't really sound like a toxic component to me. Uh, cholesterol is essential for so many uh, processes that happens in our bodies that demonizing it for whatever reason just doesn't make sense. That already is... Uh, you know, a huge point of miscommunication. Um, you can't demonize a, a food component, <laughs> a food component that, that is essential part of, of the androgens that we have, which is essential part of the vitamin D synthesis, which is essential part of the cell walls. Um, how is, is that going to cause harm, especially when we know, okay, the liver on itself endogenously produces two grams of cholesterol, we don't consume that much ever uh, from the outside in one day. And the liver is going to adjust to the amount that we consume. So it's not going to increase the levels that way. Um, we know that alimentary, meaning from food uh, consumption of cholesterol, doesn't increase the levels of cholesterol in our bloodstream. So that um, cholesterol might be a good parameter for certain but that would be an endogenous problem caused by other effects. Okay, so I mean, you know, people still think that having like eggs is going to cause their cholesterol to spike like crazy. So for most individuals, unless they have some sort of issue, eggs, red meat, you'd say that's okay as long as they're not combining it with some sort of processed carbohydrate. I say those food components, eggs and meat, have been essential part for I don't know four million years, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I don't see the point why now um, with you know increasing you know weird strategies to force people to eat more vegetables and focus their diet on carbohydrates with very questionable propaganda attempts. I must call it that way. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why those foods that you know 
that are perfectly natural for humans to consume now all of a sudden turn into toxic components. Every natural food that we know has a place in human nutrition and that includes all natural plant foods and all natural animal sourced foods. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Uh, yes, four million years. That's a very, very good point, Rubio. Uh, all right. Uh, now, what about you, you? Made a post about um, the brain teeth access, and that was actually really interesting. Can, can you um, touch briefly on what that is? Brain teeth access. Yeah. I just, uh, I just showed a picture of the connection, um, you know, from the nervous system, from the teeth, uh, in direction of the brain. So I just wanted to point out that, you know, infectional diseases in um, your oral tract, if you want to call it that way, don't just, uh, you know, affect, you know, that have the effect that you have acute pain or local pain in your teeth, or is it just an infection in here? You know, it has a lot of, you know, direct impacts also potentially on the brain and its physiology. So um, my main attempt of this post was just to show how close that connection is. And um, yeah, you shouldn't, uh, yeah. When we talk about food components like like sugar or processed fats and etc., we always just focus on how that affects the metabol uh, the um, the metabolism after actually consuming it, and then it's going to affect you know have an effect when we have metabolites running around our uh, our bodies. But actually, already the intake in your mouth has direct impact on. Uh, on uh, your nervous system, um, on the reaction with certain hormones. And, you know, I just wanted to point that out, mm. um, how that works. And uh, I'm pretty sure I got a little bit more on the, on the uh, research area in my post, but uh, just to give an overview, it's, it's a very close connection. And not only the components that you have in your stomach are going to affect your metabolism. Also what, what happens in your mouth already has a huge impact. Yeah, in interesting. Uh, well, talking about um, digestive system and the gut, I mean, how important is our gut health for our immune system, and and how do we make sure that you know we do have a you know a proper gut health? Well, um, <laughs> the gut health depends on on the dietary regimen that you're on mainly, and um, people tend to overcomplicate this topic usually by uh, by topics like probiotics, prebiotics, whatever. I, I I don't know what the term was. I had something new all <laughs> coming up <laughs> that as well. I don't know what that all is all about. But when we talk about gut health, we usually talk about the uh, the barrier there, which that the uh, uh, the mucosa is intact, that um, the metabolization is effectively, that we can absorb the nutrients that we want to absorb and, you know, excrete the toxins that we don't want to have in our metabolism. Um, that depends on the, on the health of the uh, microbiota, the microbiome that we have in our uh, intestines. And keeping that intact depends on natural foods, basically, which might differ individually, whether it's more of a plant-based or more, on, more of an animal-based attempt, uh, but it's all about the, the natural foods. Um, and 
yeah, that's basically what I can what I can tell you about it. And uh, the the microbiota has a direct impact on basically every um, aspect of our metabolism, and uh, just because it affects the absorption of every nutrient. So the 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 range of potential negative effects of a disrupted microbiome, for example, by abusing antibiotics, is huge. So. That's why the side effects may be very unprecise at some points as well, which makes it a very, very complex topic. Yeah. So do you recommend people, you know, take some sort of, you know, probiotic or digestive enzyme, or you just want them to go to eating more of a, um, you know, natural food sources and, and plant sources and, and see how their body responds? Um, well, the balance of the microbiota depends primarily on the environment that they have to live in, and those depend on the sources that you in, that you eat. Um, so that's the the prime balance of which uh, bacterium you want to have there, or what's natural for your individual metabolism. That depends on the food choices. And the only time when I recommend anti, um, probiotics would be after the abuse of antibiotics. Mm. So you consume a lot of, uh, of probiotics if you just consume, for example, natural uh, milk products. But that you know, happens just yeah, as a side effect. But uh, consciously uh, adding probiotics, I only recommend that after the ex excessive use of antibiotics, which unfortunately is a huge problem on, in our modern society and that really disrupts the the microbiome uh, long-term potentially and causes a lot of uh, problems so in that case it might be needed to um, yeah force the microbiome to regrow faster by by having probiotics but the main aspect is always the environment of of the of the microbiome mm. okay so what are the most harmful foods that you know that you want people to cut out i mean you know, the specific specific type of processed carbohydrates seed oils sugar combination of them all you know um really what are the worst things that are people that people are intaking that are obviously not only affecting that their their their, their weight but their their immune system and their overall health what do you feel like people need to cut out first and foremost well, um, it's always it's always a holistic attempt that I'm going for when I try to do those uh, kind of interventions, and um, as I already said, it's uh, you know every natural food source has a part in human nutrition, mm -hmm. and every processed processed food, whether it's animal based or not, is a potential uh, has potential negative effects. And should also be, um, yeah, you know, claimed as one. You know, it's a toxin at <laughs> at every dosage, just like alcohol is. You know, um, it's you know, there's nothing good about processed sugar, never. So we, it doesn't mean that we uh, we can't have a treat once in a while, but when we have one, we should know about the potential negative effects of it. And um, yeah, my my work just focus on promoting natural foods mm. uh, based on the individual cravings and uh, yeah, excre excluding all the processed ones basically. Oh, 
Okay. Uh, what about seed oils uh, specifically? You know, what, which oils um, should people stay away from and why? Well, those seed oils have the problem that they are super omega-6 dominant and just not uh, a, um, a natural food component because in nature you wouldn't consume those seeds in those big amounts. And they also co contain a lot of anti-nutrients uh, which you don't want to which you definitely don't want to overconsume. And those uh, seed oils, for example, if you, you know, to name an example, sunflower oil, um, those extracts are super high in omega six fatty acids and going to lead to an, to an omega six dominance, which, as we probably all know, is uh, pro will promote pro-inflammatory uh, processes in the human body. So um, that would be one example why that is not really uh, a great idea. Also, we have a negative effect on the microbiome, which we already discussed. Omega-6 oils have an impact on that. And of course, with the omega-6 dominance, you have various side effects on the cognitive and on the physiological level. So that, that one will, will spread. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so stay away from the seed oils. So um, yeah, I mean, you've got that, uh, probably that, that cognitive decline and gonna mess with like anxiety and, and, and mental health. And I, I know you, you post about, um, you know, lifestyle habits and, and food, because you're not, you're not just talking about specifically food, you're, you're talking about everything that you can do from what you do when you wake up in the morning, you know, to, getting some sunlight? What, what are some people, things that people can do even for their lifestyle? Uh, obviously, they know that they need to cut out the sugars and the seed oils and things like that, but what can they do to help with their mental health um, and clarity every day? Well, there are, of course, a lot of aspects and it's all about a little, it's a little bit also about personal preference, what kind of, um, you know, healthy habits you want to include into your daily life. But um, things like a morning run, which is something I really enjoy, you know, with the sunrise, I talked about the benefits of uh, morning sunlight a lot on my Instagram page as well. Then, of course, the benefits of uh, going to the gym, workout, you know, building up, uh, building up um, muscle tissue, which is one of the major aspects to uh, live a healthy lifestyle, even um, with uh, progressing age, you know, um, lean body tissue is, is a huge aspect for that, highly underrated. So, um, you know, especially the elderly should uh, really focus on some gym work. <laughs> and, uh, also, the, uh, you know, every nutritional aspect that we talk about is linked to certain uh, behaviors in your everyday life, like I did the example with the with the sofa and the overconsuming of you know crisps or chips or whatever. So um, there are a lot of potential uh, triggers for inter uh, for interventions, but on an individual level because those lifestyles look different, and we have to talk about those individual things. But also things like you know sounds weird, but uh, having a reading routine, for example, is something that really promotes. Not, not only your uh, your cognitive health but also just makes you makes you a better person because for some reason people that that learn a lot and study a lot they they don't overconsume <laughs> foods for some reason because <laughs> just is a part of it's just a part of a healthy lifestyle you know yeah. and it's the things that you do are going to affect every other things or to the better or 
or to the worst. There's never a neutral decision. And if you watch the news uh, <laughs> with some new uh, indoctrination or whatever, uh, makes a huge difference to um, yeah, reading a critical source in a, in a textbook and uh, just making up your own mind. Mm, so, yeah. Makes sense. All right. Uh, I know you're tight on time, so I got a couple more questions for you. What about supplementation? Uh, what What is your thought process um, on supplements that people should take, or you know, maybe some things that are people people are over consuming? Mm, generally, I think that the uh, supplementation in general increases its importance in the modern area or in the modern life because we have a huge decrease of general food quality mm. so um the foods that we consume now if it's the animal-based or the uh, plant-based foods they don't contain as many micronutrients and vitamins and minerals as we as it used to be so that's why supplementation um yeah, really has to get more focus um yeah nowadays than it used to be you know Usually, I'm a big supporter of trying to uh, uh, cover all your nutrient needs with real foods, but this is going to be harder when, uh, <laughs> with uh, yeah, every year that passes. So we have to especially focus on components like vitamin D, um, which I talk a lot on, on my page as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to cover that with uh, natural food sources, especially when you don't have the opportunity to get, to get out into the sun, like where you're living and where I live. So vitamin D take, uh, is, uh, is a huge aspect uh, for many reasons. Even though I'm eating a salmon steak every day, it's hard for me to cover, <laughs> hard for me to cover all my vitamin D. We have things like cobalamin uh, or B12, which has a huge aspect on a lot of metabolic levels and also is, uh, especially for people that tend to eat plant-based, um, always a, an issue and always something that you have to, to focus on. So yeah, um, I don't think that there is a supplement that is better than the other. It just depends on your food choices and what you can cover from it and whatnot. Um, except maybe vitamin D, which we should all all uh, supplement, especially during winter times, and maybe omega three supplements like uh, DHA and EPA, which is hard to cover by by uh, natural foods if you don't have the opportunity to eat fish or fatty sea fish every day. Which of course is also a financial question and mm. uh, for, for a lot of clients. Yeah. yeah. What about magnesium? You speak a lot about magnesium. Why why do we need to make sure that we get enough magnesium? Well, magnesium has um, yeah, a huge, huge impact on the metabolism on many levels, um, which also contributes to the massive amounts of side of potential side effects of a magnesium deficiency, which I posted about a couple of days ago. Um, the range is, is huge, you know, magnesium directly activates the parasympathetic system, which helps with uh, getting enough sleep in. It is... Um, essential for activating the, uh, the vitamin D hormone. So not only vitamin taking enough vitamin D, but also enough uh, magnesium is essential to have, <laughs> to activate the vitamin D that you're consuming. And um, there are just a lot of things, you know, um, it is uh, essential for so many um, enzymatic uh, reactions that it basically affects every cell that we have. So, um, 
yeah mm. <laughs> the range the range is huge <laughs> so where, where do you if people you know what are some main foods that people should be consuming to get magnesium um and if they don't get that is there a general recommendation on how much magnesium they should be taking in a day if it's supplement form well that that really depends a bit on uh, on the individual itself. My personal recommendation is fatty sea fish also for uh, for for magnesium. I uh, pointed that out a lot in my Instagram page, um, basically because of the combination of vitamin D and magnesium that you have in, in fatty sea fish. Um, so that is a, a very good recommendation there. Um, with the amounts that I recommend, um, it's it's very hard to tell. You know, I'm not. I'm usually not the guy that does general recommendation mm. on take of any kind of supplement or uh, form of nutrient also from, from natural food sources because as, as I already claimed, uh, I'm a supporter of those natural body signals. And if the body craves for more magnesium, um, it's gonna let you know usually. So, and that's when, when I come to action and not focusing too much on numbers which have a huge potential <laughs> to be biased in some way. So, sure. yeah. How, how do you know if it's craving magnesium, you know, or some other nutrient, right? Well, usually that could be uh, something that people unnaturally crave for sugary foods. Mm. Um, that's, for example, uh, one thing uh, that I talked about a lot, how that happens. Um, because people usually don't crave for sugary foods on a, on a natural on a natural level, um, because as mentioned, carbohydrates are a non-essential nutrient. So the craving has to come from from mainly from something else, and uh, magnesium is one component that could uh, that that could be missing to to cure that issue. So that would be one example, but okay. those topics get, uh, get really detailed. And if we go that path, I think we open up more questions than answers. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> that's, that's fair. All right. That's fair. Okay. Last question. Where, where do you feel the future of your field, nutrition, nutritional science is headed? Um, and what are you excited about? That's hard to tell because I think we are now at, you know, a sort, some sort of a split point in which direction we really want to go um, because this plant-based community is, is very, very strong. And, you know, with this entire um, yeah, forced by, by Fridays for Future, this climate change thing, you know, however you stand towards those things, but it has a huge impact on how we see nutritional interventions and what is ideal and what's not. And my... Yeah, I have a question if that is the right path or if we should really focus more on, on, on natural food sources and include everything that we have in our power and all the aspects that we can really try, you know. If people, you know, focus on one direction exclusively, there's all, there usually is, is some aspect that they don't want you to ask. <laughs> I'd say it that way. and. Um, that gives me a little bit of a weird feeling how how they are going to have um, impact on the, for example, on taxes with with meat consumption and all those kind of things. So, you know, I hope that you know the opportunity will be there that we have 
that we can increase general food quality, the agriculture, that we don't demonize any sort of foods, but uh, generally force the quality of those foods and try to um, yeah, promote real education on those foods, critical information, not like bias from one side, from, from one wing only, but uh, educate the people on how vital those, uh, those topics are and um, yeah, spread those, this information. That would be, what I, that's, what, that's basically why I started this entire thing also. So okay. I, wanna, I want a fair debate on those things and this is what I, I try to stand for. All right, Rubio, where can people find you? Well, I, I have an Instagram page called Rubio Fuerte where I uh, post regs and uh, try to, um, yeah, how do you say, uh, simplify complex topics so that we can spread the information to a bigger audience because usually when people try have these nutritional debates, there are so many weird sounding terms for, for, for many people that it's just not making sense to have this debate on, on a, on, with a bigger audience. And I try to simplify those. And um, yeah, that's mainly happening on my Instagram page, uh, Rubio Fuerte. Okay. Yeah, Rubio, R-U-B-I-O Fuerte, F-U-E-R-T-E. Fancy name. He's like a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rubio. Thanks for coming on. I'm Joey Thurman. This was another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Mm -hmm.